0: And you know the interesting thing is as we began to recover we had a number of people that we rehired because you know when you cut a third of your workforce you are not just cutting fat you're you're cutting bone skin muscle everything else I mean these are these are really good people, and we struggled with it. and And a lot of time, and a lot of the people that we let go of had nothing to do with their performance, but it had everything to do with what department was going to, in the recession, what department was did we need?
1: Welcome to Innovation and in Leadership, where I interview uncommonly high achievers like top investment fund managers, elite special operations soldiers, startup CEOs who sold their companies for billions of dollars, pro athletes, Hollywood filmmakers really as many different kinds of experts as I can. The whole idea is to hear how they did it and then what advice they have for the rest of us that can be applied to the organizations we're trying to grow and innovate. Thanks for listening. And I hope you enjoyed today's show. This is our next installment of our transformative influence and leadership mini series with Walt Rakowicz, author of Transfluence. Walt, what are we going to talk about today?
0: Jess, we're going to talk about this issue of when you encounter adversity, run towards it and as i say no one really enjoys adversity especially in the business world i think but yet when you encounter it i think at some point in your career you'll find that it actually can be a positive so we're going to talk about the opportunities associated with running at adversity or toward adversity as opposed to running away from it
1: why do you say people should run towards it
0: well i speak from experience And I found that it actually created some terrific opportunities in my life. You know, I used to tell people when I I took over the company in 2008, I used to tell all my people that, remember, adversity builds perseverance. Perseverance builds your character. And character leads to hope. And, you know, I didn't come up with that, actually. That's something that I got out of the Bible, but I always used it. And uh, so I used to say to them, let's persevere right now. Because if we do, the future will be in our control. And I, I, I think it's tough for leaders, you know, to, to run towards adversity. But I do think that you learn the most about yourself. You learn the most about the people that you're managing. And it really becomes a litmus test for you. And, you know, for me, honestly, it just has created so many opportunities that I, I've, I've stopped running from it. And I've started realizing that if I run towards it, it will actually create more opportunities for me down the road.
1: You know, when you think about how magnetic it is for others to see someone, especially a leader, taking not just high levels of personal responsibility, but potentially taking adversity, you know, taking it on, even if it wasn't obviously their personal responsibility. And they, they take it on anyways. They sign up for it. Yeah. You know, like how inspiring is that? How easy is it to follow somebody like that, right?
0: Yeah, I can't tell you that I've always been that way, though. I'll, I, you know, let, let me let's face it: nine out of ten people or more run from it, and I've run from it in the past. But really, if I look back on on my greatest learning experiences as a leader and really as a person, they generally came during difficult times. And again, you'd never wish it on anybody, but. I've kind of, over, over my lifetime, I've learned to stop running from it.
1: When you think about times during your life where adversity actually turned out to be a good thing, what, what would those look like in your past? In your past?
0: Well, I, I, I would just say this. One, one of the things I, I tell people all the time is that every time that I got outside of my comfort zone in my life, just about every time, and I had to make a tough decision, which didn't seem obvious, but and it was uncomfortable. It led to something better. And there's been a number of things that have happened to me in my life and I, I, you know, probably the funniest story, and I wouldn't even call this necessarily an adverse situation, but something that some people would say, what a! I can't believe I found myself in this. I'll share with you a story that happened to me when I was in college. And I came home from college one time, and actually it was my first year at Penn State. I'd come home and my dad said to me, hey, do you have a job this summer? And I said, no, I don't have a job yet. And he said, well, let's go down to the steel mill. And and then I live, grew up in Pittsburgh, so let's go down to the steel mills, and then let's go to the sanitation department. And I I looked at him, I go, those are two jobs that I'd never, ever seen myself in. So he, put, he told me to put a suit on and a tie, and believe it or not, I walked into the steel mill, and then I walked into the sanitation department with this. And all of these garbage men in the sanitation department just looking at me like, who is this guy? Anyway... I left after applying. My fraternity brothers and I got together, and unfortunately, we drank way too much beer that that afternoon. These are things that you do when you're in your teens. And I got home from that at about three o'clock in the morning, and the phone rang at three thirty in the morning. And it, he said, "Walt, this is Pete from the garbage disposal. I need I need you to come into work." I said, "What? Are you kidding me?" And I I didn't even believe him, so I hung up the phone. I said, I'm going to hang up, and I'm going to call you back, because I have to verify that this is actually happening, and I did. I called him back, and wouldn't you know, Pete from the, and he he had given me his card that day, so that's how I had his number, and so anyway, wouldn't you know that Pete from the disposal picks it up, and he said, son, I need you to get into work. We just had a guy quit, and I need you to get, you know, we start picking up garbage at 430 in the morning, and so I said- so you mean I need to get there now? He said, Yes, right now. So anyway, I get in there and he smells my breath. And he said, he said, son, are you drunk? And I said, Yes, I am, but I didn't expect to get a call from you. And he said, Well, can you can you hang on to the side of a, a garbage truck? You know, these <laughs> trucks go about 50 miles an hour. And I said, Yeah, I think so. So long and short of it was I get out, out there and we're going around the bend. And what you know, I fly off the truck. Okay, and the truck skids. And, you know, my my buddies, Patterson and Jimmy, run out and they say, uh, hey, man, are you okay? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I'm fine. I'm fine. <laughs> anyway, long story short, the very guys who looked at me, who walked in that, when I walked in that day, and I'm looking at them and they're looking at me, I have a tie on and I'm thinking there's no way I would ever want to work here. And they're looking at me saying, I hope you never hire this kid. All of a sudden, my story became like folklore. And, you know, I earned some credibility with these guys. It was really interesting. And they took me under their wing. And I can honestly say, looking back on it, it was really one of the coolest jobs, certainly summer jobs that I ever had in my life. And Actually, I think that looking back on it, when I wrote my leadership book, I thought, you know, I really learned a lot from these guys in my leadership journey, you know, they're a bunch of good guys, unglamorous work, but at the end of the day, they all had families, you know, they're human, and they're just like me. And I think there's a basic level of respect that we need to give everybody in in this world. And and my parents always taught me to appreciate people for who they were. And so the job that I absolutely unequivocally didn't want to have, the job that I was never qualified for, became actually one of the coolest things that I ever did. And uh, so that's, I wouldn't say it was adversity, but it was certainly something unexpected that came out of a situation that, that I never really cared to do. And the biggest story, of course, for me was my story at Prologis, and I'll, I'd like to spend a minute talking about that. I think you know that, Jess, but the story of Prologis is that I had a fallout with the CEO really quickly, and, uh, and this is in, January, in, in 2007, and I had left the company in 2008. The fallout was really over the way you manage people, the culture of the company, which I felt was going in the wrong way. So I left the company in January 2008, and I had been gone for about 10 months. And in November of 2008, it was almost like doomsday for me because I got a call from the lead director. And the lead director of the Prologis board said, look, I want you to become the CEO of the company. Are you willing to take the job? Now, you might think that most people would be honored and excited that they had been called 10 months after they left to take on the job and replace the existing CEO who you had a fallout with. But that actually wasn't the case at all for me. In fact, I really wasn't sure I wanted it. He told me I was right 10 months ago, and he told me that the company had made some mistakes, and he told me that if I accepted the job, you know, people would want me to come in with open arms. But You see, the problem was that the stock was down over 95% at that point in time, from $72 to $2 a share. and. It was the third worst performing stock in the S&P 500 over that 10 month stretch. And the Wall Street Journal had just done an article about how the company was on the verge of bankruptcy. And so I thought about it. And the first thing I thought about was, oh my God, what's the next three years of my life gonna be like if we go bankrupt? You know, And, and what's my family? I mean, what, what's my commitment gonna be like to my family? I was totally scared. And frankly, Jess, I didn't know if I had the chops to do it. I mean, the interesting thing is that when you face adversity like this, it's almost always your first time. And, and, and so you doubt yourself. I doubted myself. And I told him that I would, I would need a little time to think about it. And he said, well, 24 hours is all I have. I talked to my wife. And at the end of the day, I took the job because I had hired so many of the people. I was familiar with the company. I really wasn't sure if I could do it, but I was in a, you know, I was in a corner. And over the course of the next few years, I learned a lot about myself. And I learned a lot about the people that I led. And I learned a lot about what it meant to create trust in an organization. I became a better leader. And in the long run, it took three, three years. But we did turn around the company. We didn't go bankrupt. All of my fears three years later were all gone. And it was actually, looking back on it, it was the greatest thing that ever happened to me. Even though I would never have wished it on anybody when it happened.
1: You know, I love the way that you tell this story in the book as well. And, you know, when you talk about being the CFO and knowing what it's going to mean for you to not just go along with the CEO who's willing to grow at any price and maybe not paying as much attention to the value of the acquisitions he wants to do, right? And like, it just feels like, I think, as the reader, it's so easy to be there with you and think like, oh, man, that's, that's a big consequence to kind of have that line in the sand of like, hey, hey, boss, I can't go with you on this one, you know? I'm interested. What do you think was the most difficult or adverse thing during that time for you?
0: Well, it happened not too long after I came back. You know, I, I, I walked in the door and I realized that it, would, it was going to take a real effort to turn it around. But I, candidly, I didn't know how bad the financials were in the company. It had been 10 months. You know, I left and came back and I kind of thought things were going to be better than they were and they weren't. <laughs> and, I think one of the most adverse things that I had to deal with was laying off a third of the workforce. And that's the decision we came to. And, you know, it took several months and the financials just kept getting worse and worse and worse. Our first earnings call with with investors was a disaster, (laughs) as you can imagine. And so we all sat around in this room, myself and my team. And we said, okay, well, we know we're going to have to lay off some people. How much is it? And a lot of it Depended on the severity of the recession. You know, like if you didn't think the recession was going to be that bad, we thought we could probably get away with laying off 10 to 15% of our people. But we all thought, Jim, this is the Great Recession. This is not good. And it was ugly, as you know. Everybody that went through it knew how bad it was. And so we decided that the right number would be 30% of our workforce. And the first thing out of the mouth of one of my executives was, Well, you know, it's going to probably take about 30 to 45 days to figure out who all is going to get laid off. So we're going to need to keep this under wraps. You know, let's talk about how we do that. And, you know, I was thinking about the day before when I was walking around the hallways and you could just see the somber look on everybody's face in the office. Jess, they knew it was coming. All the water cooler talk was like, you know, how bad is it going to be? Are we going bankrupt? How many people are they, they, the management team going to lay off? You know, everybody's talking about it. And it was no surprise to people. And I remember saying in the meeting, you know what? We can't wait 45 days or 30 days to know all the details. And as a matter of fact, if we unroll, if we unveil this with all of the details, then everybody's going to think that we've been sitting on this for at least 30 days, because how else would you have all the details, Right you don't come to the decision the day that you have all the details. And I was really worried about transparency in the company, creating trust in the organization. And so I said, no, we can't do that in the meeting. I said, you know, we have to tell our employees now. We just came to that decision. And a couple of people in the the meeting were like, well, well, we're a public company. We need to, we have to tell the world before we can tell our employees. It's public, you know, it's, it's, you don't want to create a situation where your employees have non-public information. And I said, okay, well then let's call a, a, a meeting and let's make the announcement and we'll have a conference call with our analysts about it, make the announcement. And then we're going to go right into a meeting and we're going to tell all of our employees, we came to this decision two days ago and that's it. And we just, you know, and we did, and we walked into the meeting with our employees and we showed them the math. We said, look, we want to try to save the jobs of the two thirds of the people that are here. That means we have to lay off a third. But here's what we're going to do. We don't have a lot of money on one hand, but we're going to treat it as if we have a lot of money. You know, We're going to give you outplacement services. We're going to give you financial advice. We're going to give you emotional support. We're going to give you counseling if you need it. And we're going to give you fair severance packages because at the end of the day, the third that we're letting go of are as important as the two thirds that we're keeping. And we want you to know that we're being transparent the day that we knew about something. So we're taking a risk. We don't know who who the people are. And so everybody's going to have to hang around this company for the next 30 to 45 days until we know. And we know that's uncomfortable for you, but we wanted to tell you when we knew. And I believe that adverse situation, which is probably one of the most difficult things for leaders to go through, turned out to be a blessing for us because it helped us build trust in the organization through transparency, through brutal honesty, through the timeliness associated with how we told people. I think in retrospect, the employee base looked back at it and said, you know what? Now that we've processed all this, it's a bummer that a third of us are gonna go, but I think they treated us with dignity and they treated us the right way as employees. And I truly believe, Jess, that that adverse situation for us Turned out to be one of the most important ways that we built trust over time with our employees.
1: You know, it's interesting. When I was with City, I was an M&A team for City in in Irvine, California, and they decided to move our division to San Francisco and lay off almost all my coworkers. And they were trying to get me to switch to a different division. And, and there'd been people there who'd been there for, you know, 23 years or something. Right. Mm -hmm. And it was like pandemonium because it was one big surprise and it was like effective immediately. And the emotions were like a mile high, you know? Yeah. And like, I, I can see an advantage. I mean, I think that there's this risk of like oh no if we tell people then maybe our best people will go look for jobs elsewhere and we'll be left with the people who didn't have other options. You know there's all these like self-focused that, fears.
0: Yeah, that's right. Exactly right. That was our biggest concern was that the day that we said that to people we'd lose the good people. And that was the comeback in the in the management meeting that several of my managers said and they they weren't wrong. You know it's you know that's why you have meetings, right? You you, you you try to strengthen each other and come up with the right consensus solution, but they weren't wrong and they said, well, we might lose some really good people during the 30 days that we're trying to figure it out. And I said, I understand that. That's the risk that we take. But how you communicate it. And in our case, we did a global web, webcast. So people in Europe were able to watch it at the same time as the people in the United States people in Asia weren't able to watch it. They had to watch it the next day. And so we, you know, we, we we recorded it, but we tried to have a real-time town hall meeting and we had no end to the town hall meeting. That was the other, the interesting thing is that there was no end to it. We said, we're going to devote the entire afternoon to this. No bad questions. There are none at all. And we were at, answering questions just for hours. It was brutal, but you know, I think that level of transparency and openness and, and in, obviously in City, it's a little bit more difficult than Prologis where we had, we had thousands of employees, but we didn't have hundreds of thousands of employees. But nonetheless, we still had, you know, we were a pretty big company and we handled it that way. And I really think in retrospect, it really was one of the best things that we ever did as a management team. It was our toughest moment, and yet it turned out to be our brightest moment.
1: You know, there's so many messages within that. I was really interested to hear you say that you didn't have an end to it. You know, you think about this idea of you're letting people know now because you're trying to take care of them, trying to do what's right for them. That idea of listening and being willing to answer as many questions as they were, like what a great reinforcing message of like, we are taking responsibility. You can trust us. We're, we're not shrinking from the challenge, you know.
0: We're going to compensate you fairly in the event you're part of the one third. And, you know, the interesting thing is, as we began to recover, we had a number of people that we rehired. Because, you know, when you cut a third of your workforce, you are not just cutting fat, you're, you're cutting bone, skin, muscle, everything else. I mean, these are, these are really good people. And we struggled with it. And, and a lot of time, and a lot of the people that we let go of had nothing to do with their performance, but it had everything to do with what department was going to in the recession, what department was, did we need, and then what department did we not need. For example, we were a development firm, a real estate development firm, and we knew that we weren't going to be constructing new buildings. So a lot of people in the construction department went. Now, there were a lot of really good people in the construction department, but because they were in the segment of the company that wasn't going to grow, we had to let them go. Well, as soon as we did start growing in, you know, 2011, 12, 13, a lot of those employees, not a lot of them, but several of them came back. And, you know, I think that the way we treated them in a dignified way had a lot to do with that. I mean, if we, treat, you know, they they, they leave with a bad taste in their mouth, they ain't coming back to the company. That's just the bottom line, you know.
1: You know, I think about so many of the leaders that I respect and something that seems quite common amongst them is long-term thinking instead of short-term thinking and that, you know, what's going to make the analysts happy next quarter versus what's the long term, what's the long-term reputation of our entire organization. You know, that's the difference between short-term thinking, long-term thinking, right?
0: Yeah, it is. And it's a short-term action, but you have to be thinking about it in the long-term. You have to be saying, okay, in three years from now, don't we want some of these people to come back (laughs) And and what does that mean for how we treat them today? Um,
1: so, what are some examples of leaders that you see out there taking on adversity?
0: Well, there are a lot of them. You know, I I think I've, I've tried to study some people in this area, and and I think one of the most interesting stories is, is I look back and you know everybody's familiar with IBM. One of the one of the CEOs in IBM, his name is Thomas Watson, and you, you look back on a guy like him. He was he was a former chair CEO. He's he's quoted as saying that you should double your rate of failure. I love I love that quote. And you know so Watson worked as a as a traveling salesman selling organs and pianos. He started his career doing that for 10 bucks a week, I think as the story goes and and then he peddled shares for a building and loan company that went bankrupt and uh, defrauded investors and he he spent some time having to explain that. And then he started a butcher shop and he went broke um, starting this butcher shop. And so ultimately he took a job with IBM. And, you know, we were talking about how perseverance pays off. He ultimately um, became the CEO of IBM, grew, grew sales over a billion. He was first CEO to grow sales at IBM to over a billion dollars. And you look at, you look at a guy like that and you say, wow. And then there was, I, I write in my book about this gentleman by the name of John Mack, who was my, who became my mentor who you, you know you're 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 nodding your head almost everybody in the investment banking business knew John John Mack was the CEO of Morgan Stanley, and you might remember and and John Mack and I got together in in March, I think it was February or March I flew up to New York to see him. And uh, we got together in his office and he told me the story about how the treasury secretary and the Fed tried to jam JP Morgan and Morgan Stanley together and, and the conference calls that he was having with them to do that. And imagine the pressure in 2008 when that all happened, right? And, you know, he said, you know, nothing against Jamie. I love Jamie, but, you know, this is not right for our shareholders. This doesn't make any sense. And I'm sorry, but I understand the crisis that we're in, but I am not doing that for our shareholders, period, end of story. He told me he even hung up the phone, literally slammed the phone on one of them. I can't remember if it was the Treasury Secretary of the Fed, but, but anyway, you know, I mean, you think about the pressure that guy was under, the adversity that he went through, and he didn't buckle, and Morgan Stanley is the firm that we all knew them today, and you know, it's 10 years later, or, or 12 years later, but Imagine the adversity that he went through. And interestingly enough, Prologis, you know, one of the things I, I did before I left was we merged with AMB, which was our largest competitor. And and Morgan Stanley was our investment bank. And JP Morgan, oddly enough, was AMB's investment bank. So you know, here they are. They're they're separate companies to get today. And you think about the adversity that a guy like that, you know, went through. So those are, those are some of the leaders. I mean, there's, there's a number of them that are out there that have led through tough times. Alan Mullally is another one who led Ford Motor. I mean, imagine imagine how, much he, how much pain he went through when Chrysler and GM accepted bailouts from the federal government. And he basically said, no, we're not going to do it. We're going to do it ourselves. And they were on the brink themselves, right? And he changed operationally, he changed the company. And I think I just saw today that Ford Motor, I don't think that they had record earnings, but they had a really, they had a really strong quarter, over $2 billion of earnings this quarter. Imagine that, that company almost going down in 2008. And so, so many business leaders that are out there that I think went through incredibly adverse situations, but their companies in the long run turned out to be pretty doggone good because of the way that those leaders acted during during very, very difficult times.
1: You know, you talk about John Mack in the book, and I'm interested, you know, what was it about him, just either the way he conducted himself or his ex- experience, what was it that drew you to him? That you knew this was a guy that you wanted to get counsel from.
0: I found it to be so interesting that when you think about an investment banker or a CEO that runs an investment bank, the first thing that you think of that is going to come out of their mouth when you ask them a question is about finance. You just do, and you know most investment bankers grow up to you know lead finance companies, right? And and the, the people that run investment banks typically start off as an investment banker and. So when I asked John Mack, John, how are you turning around the company? His response to me, and I talk about this in the book, was just floored me. It absolutely floored me. And and I'll, I'll repeat it for your listeners again. You know, John said, well, I run the company on the basis of the three H's. And I said, John, what's that? And he said, humility, honesty. And in this day and age, a banker has to have a sense of humor. And ultimately, in my book, I write about, I, I replaced the word humor with being human. But- However you look at it, you think about it. This is an investment banker that is telling me that I needed to be as a leader, humble, honest, and funny, you know, or just a human being around my people. That struck me as being really interesting. And there was a reason, you know, John was a revered leader in the investment banking business as Jamie Dimon is today, I believe. And, you know, and so I I knew that he was revered and I knew that people liked him for a reason. And so I was naturally drawn to him, and I wanted to have the conversation with him because of what I expected to hear from him. And he didn't disappoint.
1: Oh, that's great. Yeah. Well, you think about you think about how much in an organization rises and falls on leadership. I, I, I'm interested when you think specifically of the world of real estate investment trusts, where you know Prologis is such a, a incredibly respected name. When you look both within your experience at Prologis or, or other places across the industry. What are some commonalities that you see amongst the the top leaders of REITs?
0: Well, the uh, that's a great question. The commonalities I, I think is that are that they most of them at least have good you know pretty strong asset allocation backgrounds. You know they 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 understand how to allocate capital, and real estate is a capital hog, as you know. And so I think you you have to understand that, and that's what most people would tell you. Oh, if they're you know if they're a CEO of the REIT, they better understand how to how to place capital, uh, allocate capital. But if if you look at some of the best REITs that are out there today, I mean, I think they used to be REITs used to be a collection of assets. The best companies, and I I point to Prologis. I'm not running that company anymore, so it's easy for me to point to it because I know what they are and i know what they stand for they're broader there's so much broader than that not only do they do a plethora of things within the real estate business in other words they manage properties they develop properties they acquire properties they you know they're they're fully integrated in many respects but they have an unbelievable program internally that you know relates to sustainability and and their their sustainability efforts throughout the world and they're taking real estate and turning it into more and more a service company where they're they're using AI to try to understand their customers a little bit better in their buildings and the movement of inventory and how that relates to their business and how they can become better at their business as a result of that. you know they have the scale with close to one billion square feet today to be able to look at the entire portfolio and say, "How do we?" Um, increase the efficiency in this portfolio. How do we cut our costs and use our size to do that? There's just a number of different ways that they do that. But I think the the most important thing that I saw over the years is that they is just the way they treat their people. They want the best people. They understand that they can be great if they can hire great people, and they will not be great if they don't have great people. And I think the way they treat people internally, the way that we treated them when I was there, and I think the way that they continue to treat them today is as if they're the best in the world. And that, I think it really does at the end of the day, just boil down to
1: that. You know, I think about that and I think about how many CEOs and entrepreneurs and leaders can pay lip service to something like that but there's less organizations like a, like a Netflix where it's like a very intentional thing and they'll they'll pay above the standard rates to get the most creative talent to come help them win an Oscar you know like they're it's not just lip service it's it's very ingrained in the policies and the way the whole organization is run to to walk the walk there you know i i feel like there's such a temptation for leaders sometimes to try and get you know they've got budgets and they've got this and that and so And they're busy. And so it's very, it's very tempting to either for entrepreneurs to see how cheap can I get that job done, right? Or for for leaders to say, well, like, you know, somebody in HR said the salary should be about this. And so we're interested in candidates who will accept that rather than we're looking for the best who can do this, you know, and it's like, there's so often a temptation not to treat them like an individual, but to have all the the policies and the rules making the decision. And it ends up not communicating like, no, we value you more than those other people who are just talking the talk about having the, the place for the best talent. Any,
0: any thoughts about any of that? Yeah, I mean, look, I think any, any organization will have people that feel like they should be treated better. I mean, you know, <laughs> nobody's going to be perfect, but I think on the margin, you cannot take the attitude that you just um, articulated in a large way and attract great people that's just you know people will leave over time that's what i saw and so you if you want to be the best you have to hire the best and you have to treat they the best so
1: you know i think about we had we had joel peterson on the show a couple times you know Former former yeah. uh, leader over at Trammell Crow and CEO of JetBlue and, and a fan of yours. And and he spoke so highly of Prologis on the show and what you guys did. Mm-hmm. And I'm interested in what you think you did that maybe other REITs of, of a similar level weren't doing that, that got you guys the kind of talent that that Prologis had the rise it's had.
0: Well, I think when you hire, first of all, I think when you hire good people, you create this environment where people want to work for the best people in the world. So I do think it it starts off with your hiring practices. And then I do think that culture emanates from the top. I, I found that I was leading the company. People hung on everything that I had to say. And it worried me because I had to think about, oh, boy, well, what do I need to say today? You know, because they're going to take notes and they're going to, you know, take that back and and they're never going to forget it. And so I do think that the culture emanates from the top. And so if you have great leadership at the top and you're hiring great people throughout the organization, I think it's a recipe to be great. And, and, and what I saw at ProLogis prior to me leaving, and I think we're going to talk about this on the next podcast, is, a, is an organization that was run by fear and pride. And when that emanates from the top, and that emanates, by the way, throughout the organization, whatever the top says is what happens in the organization, then you have a siloed work environment. I think what Prologis has figured out over the years is how people can collaboratively work together because they've created the environment and the culture for that collaboration to be applauded and recognized. People feel comfortable raising their hand and disagreeing with the status quo from time to time, if you create that kind of cultural environment, then great ideas will emanate from it. But when you create that culture of fear and pride that emanates from the top, ultimately, it will stall, even if you have terrific people in the company. And I think that's truly what Prologist, you know, how they've innovated over the years has been for that reason. You know, Joel talks a lot about creating a culture of trust, and in my, in, in my book, Transfluence, the centerpiece of that really is creating trust in the organization. I think you do it as a leader specifically by being more about other people and being service-oriented servant leadership than you do by being about yourself. So Joel and I approach it to you know, kind of a little bit two different ways, but at the end of the day, it's really about creating trust in the organization. And if you can create trust, you can you can solve a lot. You can grow a lot. You can have a terrific organization.
1: You know, in the last number of years, as I've been recommended more books about servant leadership, it really does feel like an unfair advantage, specifically on what you're talking about of attracting top talent. You know, if, if people at the top have a reputation for thinking, my job is to make sure you have everything you need to get your job done, not my job is to be the king and to have you come shine my shoes. Like what What a magnet, right? Absolutely. And
0: you know i got have to tell you there's I think there's you know we were talking we started off talking about adversity, and I think there there are a number of things that i've seen adverse leaders do, but one of them just hit me a couple of weeks ago was really, really significant I, I you've probably heard of Ed Bastian, he is the um, CEO of Delta Airlines, and I was on a conference call with him a few weeks ago and and it, there, it, was, it was actually a, a, a webinar-type call. I was just listening in. And somebody asked them the question. They said, is there anything else you want to say, Ed? And this is at the end. Now, keep in mind, this is a CEO whose revenues are down somewhere order of magnitude 70% now. And in March, they were down, I think, over 90%, right? So this guy has gone through hell and back, right? And he said, this is a time that we were anointed for. He said, this is a blessing, not a burden to be a leader in this time. He said, it's an amazing time, a chapter in my life. And he said, what an honor and privilege it is to be managing it at a time like this. Now, I think about that and, that. and the first thing I think about is attitude matters. You know, I was just talking a minute ago about how culture emanates from the top. That's what I'm talking about. That's a CEO that, irrespective of how bad it is, he is still talking about it being an honor and privilege. Think about the influence that he's had with his, his employees. And they're going to get through this. And he has a chairman of the board. I don't know if you picked up on this in my book, but I interviewed Frank Blake, who is a former CEO of Home Depot. And Frank and I have become friendly over the years. And Frank Blake is the chairman of the board at Delta. So it really starts from the top. Frank Blake turned around Home Depot and he's the one that, used as his central, how do you, how do you say, his, his, his central motivation for people was something he called the inverted pyramid, where the CEO that used to be at the top of the pyramid is actually turned upside down and the CEO is at the bottom. What an attitude. I mean, these are guys that are running, they, in the case of Frank Blake, ran a, ran a huge company and, and, and now Ed Bastian running Delta Air. But you know, if you think about that kind of attitude emanating from the top, that's how you attract great people. That's how you create trust in the organization. You know, the, these are two other heroes. You're asking me about heroes before, people that I, I think a lot of, I mean, Ed Bastian is really at the top of my list.
1: All right, I love that. You know, I want to be uh, respectful of your time. I know you've only got a couple more minutes here. So the obvious question is, well, do you have anything to add that we haven't covered?
0: <laughs> well, let's see. I just think that, Look, we're going to talk in the next in the next round about fears, and I I think that sometimes people run from adversity because of fear. Boy, I I think that I think you've got to remember that adversity can be actually your friend. Nobody wants to go through it. I can't tell you that I like it. I don't, but I do think that if you approach it with a great attitude, like Ed Bastian, and and you recognize that. You're going to have to take an incremental approach. things aren't going to get solved overnight but i I truly believe that that the way you embrace it, if you do it in a positive way, it can turn out to be a real blessing and so don't shy away from it. I know it sounds odd to run to it, but I think there's a metaphor there that really means that it can be one of the greatest opportunities that you have in your life so approach it with a a positive um, mental attitude and it's going to work out
1: fine. I love it. Well, thanks for sharing this today. This has been great.
0: Thank you, Jess. Appreciate it. Look forward to the next podcast.
1: Okay. Thanks everyone for listening. Take care.